A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 1015 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We're in the book of Romans, barely, and we've reached verse 3 of the first chapter of the book of Romans. We've already had to deal with some deep, fundamental biblical truth, haven't we? If you've been with us this far, we've looked, first of all, at the man Paul himself, learned a little bit about him. We're going to learn more about him as we go along. But we did a brief overview of his life. And then immediately, Paul introduces us to some really heavy theological concepts. What does it mean to be a servant of Jesus Christ? And what does it mean to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? And, and what is this gospel Paul's introducing us to? He's going to spend the whole book elaborating on this. We looked at the powerful concept of the fact that God planned all of this beforehand. This was not something last minute kind of come to pass. God did this way, way, way in advance from eternity past, actually. But he chose to reveal a great deal of his plan through his prophets hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Partly so we could have that confirmation. We could have that evidence that this is God, not just men putting up stories together or something. Well, in verses 3 and 4, he gives us some very critical truth about the identity of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? So let's read this again. Let's get the context. So we'll start back in verse 1 and just read this whole passage. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what an introduction to a book. So much in this. But today we're focusing on verse 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we have in very concise words a lot of truth about Jesus. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but it turns out I believe the most important question that can ever be asked of anyone is, Who is Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? (laughs) Who is he? 
And, and of course, we know it goes beyond that, but you've got to start there. Who is this Jesus? And then, of course, there has to be a commitment to this Jesus, trusting Jesus, loving Jesus. But this first gives us a very concise answer to that question, who is Jesus? I think if someone were to ask you, if you're watching this video, who is the most important person in the history of the world? I think you probably, most of us would quickly say, Jesus, Jesus, no, that's no question about it. And of course, we'd need to follow that up with, well, do you know who he is? And you know, many, many people would say, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know who Jesus is. I mean, I've heard about Jesus all my life. But sadly, what will happen is we will get a, a Jesus concocted in our imagination if we're not really anchored well to Scripture. And we may come up with a Jesus in our imagination, in our thoughts that we think is Jesus. We call this imaginary creature Jesus, but he's not really Jesus. So they may be talking to somebody, if we talk to somebody about Jesus, they may be talking about somebody in their imagination, not really the Jesus of the Bible. We've got to keep that in mind. Paul tells us here first that Jesus is a real human being. He was descended from David, according to the flesh. God underlines this in Matthew and in Luke. God saw fit to make sure we understood that both Mary, of course, Mary is Jesus' biological human mother. Jesus had a human mother. He's a human being. And Joseph, of course, is Jesus. He's not his biological father, but he's his legal human father. And, and Matthew wants us to understand who they are. So Matthew begins his gospel with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew proceeds to give us the genealogy of Joseph. In Luke, when you get to chapter 3 of Luke, of course, Luke has already given us in chapters 1 and 2 the account of Jesus' birth. But then Luke gives us a genealogy also. It's a genealogy of Mary. He starts it this way in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph. I'll remind you here, I want to look at that verse a little more closely, but in Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, there, there are no punctuation marks at all. In the original Greek writings or the Hebrew writings of our Bible, there were no punctuation marks. They were added later to help readers. But, but the parenthesis that the ESV translators provide here makes sense, but it probably make a little more sense if they included more words. Remember also, the word son simply means descendant. You got that, right? I mean, we're not talking about the, we, when we use the word son, we usually talk about the immediate first descendant. But in the Bible, when you see the word son, he's talking about any descendant. Of course, he could be talking about the first descendant. So it's common for Jesus to be called the son of David. That's a common title for Jesus. And you know, of course, that doesn't mean he's the biological brother of Solomon or Adonijah or Absalom. You know that. So he's descended from David. Son of David means he's descended from David. He's not in the first generation from David. So this message here that's being given by Luke is something like this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being, parenthesis, the son as was supposed of Joseph. Jesus was actually the son of Heli, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph. So he is descendants of all those men, not Joseph, but all those men who happened to be ancestors of Mary.
Now, what is the point of all this? Well, two things at least. Old Testament prophets told us that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, the son of David. And so God used Matthew and Luke to make it very clear that Jesus is a descendant of David. He's a descendant of David biologically through Mary. He's a descendant of David legally through Joseph. But there's another truth being taught here that's obviously implied by this truth, but it's tremendously important. We need to state it explicitly. Jesus is fully human. Jesus is a real man. God caused Matthew and Luke to include their accounts of the birth of Jesus to emphasize that. That's why the birth narratives, we call them, the account of Jesus' birth, are included in Matthew and Luke. It's to emphasize Jesus was born a true human baby. He didn't just materialize out of thin air some kind of apparition or phantom when he, as a 30-year-old man, as if he were a 30-year-old man. <laughs> Do you realize there were some early heretics in the history of the church associated with Gnosticism? Who, who realized the truth about miracles, and they realized the resurrection of Jesus. Some of them did. And they concluded a, a mere man couldn't have done these things. But then they kind of went haywire. They, they tried to, to use their logic to put all this together, and they concluded that, well, Jesus must have been some kind of supernatural spirit, some kind of supernatural God, but not a man. Couldn't have been a man. A man couldn't have done this stuff. So they said he just appeared to be a man. But he really wasn't a man, that it was an illusion, an appearance. We have a name, by the way, for those people in that belief that's very confused and it's actually heretical. It's just not true. It's not the true Jesus. They're called docetists. The error is called docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokesis. It means illusion or phantom. It's part of the ancient heresy that we call Gnosticism. If you've ever studied Gnosticism, you'll run into this. But many, many, many of the true, genuine followers of Jesus, those early Christian pastors and teachers who lived at the end of the first century and on into the second century, they condemned this belief and this teaching as heresy from the very beginning. They said, no, he was really a man. He was really a man. <laughs> now, on the same level, I think it'd be a little bit difficult to find somebody today who is a true docetist in that same sense. I mean, in other words, to find somebody today who believes that Jesus really did exist but that he really wasn't a man. He was just a phantom of some kind. I guess you could call someone who talks about some kind of vague spirit of Jesus while he completely denies the historical Jesus. I guess you could call that person a docetist. I don't, I don't know. It seems like that might fit. But it's wrong. <laughs> it's a serious error. Of course, on the other hand, you've got many, many people today who deny the deity of Jesus. They don't believe he's God. So today, I think you'd find, hardly find anybody that denies his humanity, except, of course, those who don't believe he existed at all. There's some people like that that's really a foolish position to take, but some people try to take it. We'll talk about that in a minute. So in verse 4, Paul adds, Jesus was not only fully human, he was also declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Not just the Son of Man. Also, the Son of God. So if we're going to be true Christians, biblical Christians, if we're going to receive the gift of eternal life, if we're ever going to get to God the Father, Jesus said, I'm the only way, you know, to, to the Father. It has to be through Jesus, but not an imaginary Jesus. 
the Jesus of Scripture, the true Jesus. We have to get this right. The true Jesus is the only way to the Father, not some imaginary character that I've made up in my mind. The Jesus of the Bible. That's how you find out who the true Jesus is. It's from the Word of God. He's the one who's fully human, fully God, died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he saves us by his substitutionary death on the cross when we put our trust in him. Do you remember when Jesus was training his disciples and he took them to the gates of hell? You remember that episode? (laughs) Maybe not. Well, in chapter 16, verse 13, Matthew tells us that Jesus once took his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a fascinating place. I don't know if you've ever watched the Ray Vandalon videos. He has a series of videos that focus on several different archaeological sites associated with the Bible. Very interesting videos, well worth watching. But one of his videos was about Caesarea Philippi. Now, when I use that name, Caesarea Philippi, it can be confusing. So let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. There was a city called Philippi in Macedonia where Paul went on his second and third missionary journeys. That's a different city. That's not what we're talking about here. That's just plain Philippi. We're talking about Caesarea Philippi. We're also not talking about a city called Caesarea <laughs> that was on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. We've talked about that city before, too. Sometimes that city is called Caesarea Maritima to separate it from this one, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a town about 20 or 30 miles north of Capernaum, northeast of the Sea of Galilee, up very close to Mount Hermon. It's on the road to Damascus. In fact, <laughs> I'm using a little bit of an imagination here. Um, this not my, I'll be true. We're not told this in Scripture. We know that when Paul was on the road to Damascus, when God got his attention, right, Jesus appeared to him and he got saved. It could have been very near here because he would have gone nearby if he didn't go through Caesarea Philippi when he was on his way to Damascus. And you know what? When you think about it, Jesus at least implied the same question to Paul. He didn't say, Paul, who do you say that I am? He said, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? (laughs) And Saul's asking the same question. He's got to figure out who Jesus is. But it's a fascinating place. There's a grotto there, a little cave, and there's a spring that flows out of that cave, that grotto. In earlier times, it was a very large gushing spring. It's not that large today as it used to be in the past. And by the way, that same spring that comes out of this grotto at Caesarea Philippi is one of the sources of the Jordan River. Fascinating. But there were several pagan temples and shrines there in that grotto that were there supposedly to help people to worship their pagan gods, especially the Greek god Pan, one of the pagan gods. And so in that day, many, many people thought this grotto, this cave was like an entrance to the underworld. And what they believed is that these pagan fertility gods and goddesses would go down into that cave in the winter, spend the winter down in the underworld. So that's where it got its nickname, Gates of Hell. So there's a lot of symbolism associated with Caesarea Philippi. And this is where they were when Jesus told Peter and the other disciples, they were up there looking at all this, that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. (laughs) And while they were there, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Matthew 16, let's look at it. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, people in that day gave a different answer than most people would today, partly because they'd been exposed firsthand 
to the incredible, powerful teaching of Jesus and the incredible, powerful, personal presence of Jesus. And of course, his many, many powerful public miracles. It was obvious to them that Jesus was not just an ordinary man. Nobody in that day would have said that. So they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or maybe one of the other prophets. What are they saying? They're saying he must be some great prophet from the past. Somebody that God's brought back to life more powerful than ever. That's the only thing I could figure out. Some people anyway. So Jesus followed that up by saying, okay, who do you say that I am? And there it is, isn't it? The big question. It's a question that dwarfs every other question in life. Really, every one of us has to give an answer to this question. And the stakes can't be any greater. Because what we believe about life, what we believe about how we should make decisions, how we should live our lives, what we believe about the future, what we believe about eternity, according to the Bible, what's going to happen to us when this life is over, everything hangs on this question. It's as if Jesus is standing here right now asking each one of us, one at a time, individually, who do you say that I am? You've got to answer that question. Well, Peter had an answer. Verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. (laughs) He got it right. And Matthew tells us that Jesus responded to Peter with excitement. He said, verse 17, Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. (laughs) Love it. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you are blessed, you got it right, and you wouldn't have gotten that from men. (laughs) You got that from God the Father, my Father. He's shown you the truth. And I believe if we think about that question very carefully and very rationally, listen, guys, I'm not talking about a leap in the dark of some kind of foolish, irrational faith. I'm talking about rationally thinking. We can see that an answer like Peter's answer is the only one that really makes sense. Jesus is the Christ. He's God come in the flesh. He took the form of man. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead. He's Lord of my life. He's what my life's all about. And God has chosen to leave us enough evidence to let us see if we're just willing to look at it. A lot of people aren't willing. Not really. They may pretend that they are, but they don't really want to know. They don't want their life. They're too happy with other things. They're too happy with the things of the world. They don't want to think much about Jesus. But no other answer really makes sense. At Cross Creek, where I teach, I spend a little time with the kids in our Warriors of Christ class trying to help them see how some of the other common answers to that question are really irrational. So I want to share some of that with you right now, some of the same things I share in that class. For example, there are some people who will say this. Well, I believe everything the Bible says about him. And if you follow that and say, so you believe he's the only begotten son of God? They say, oh, yeah, 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 I believe that. And you believe that he really is the eternal God, God the Son, who came in the flesh as a man, fully God, fully man. They'll say, oh, yes, I believe that. The Bible teaches that, doesn't it? You say, yeah. And they say, well, I believe it. You say, you believe he died on the cross to pay for your sins? And they say, yes, I believe that. You believe he conquered death and rose from the dead? Yeah, I believe all that. You believe he's alive right now, that he lives eternally? Oh, yes, I believe it all. So you're trusting Jesus then. You're a Christ follower yourself. Your life's all about him. And now they start to hedge a little bit. Well, uh, no, not exactly. I mean, I believe all that's true, but I'm not really sure I'm willing to turn my life over to him. At least that's 
that's the way they live. And when I hear an answer like that, and you actually will hear it fairly often, they'll say, well, I, I know it's all true. I'm just not yet ready. That's the way they'll say it. I'm not ready. Maybe someday. I'm not ready to commit my life to Christ yet. And I'm thinking, do you hear what you're saying? <laughs> do you hear what a huge disconnect is going on in your mind? Do you hear how irrational you're being? I mean, what on earth would cause anybody to say, well, I believe everything the Bible says about Jesus? Now, of course, they may not really believe it. They may just say they believe it. And sometimes they think they believe it, but they don't. They don't even believe it, not really. But if they say, I believe everything the Bible says about him, but I'm not yet willing to submit my life to him. Why would anybody say something like that? Well, I think it's this. I think in their minds, somehow there's this disconnect and they don't see Jesus as a major factor in their lives right now. At the moment, they're just pretty comfortable. <laughs> they're comfortable with their lifestyle. And they may be afraid that, uh, that there's some things that they're involved in, that they're comfortable with that Jesus wouldn't think much of. <laughs> he would not He would not approve of that. So they think, maybe Jesus will mess up my life. You know, he's going to change my life so much, I'm not going to like it. So they, they're afraid. They're afraid that he may want them to go to church. <laughs> they don't want to go to church. He may want them to get in a small group Bible study. They don't want to get in a small group Bible study. He may want them to quit getting drunk and they don't want to quit get, getting drunk or he may want to quit smoking or quit looking at porn or quit having sex with a girlfriend or maybe he'll want to give some money to, to, to the church or to other causes and, and they don't want to do that stuff <laughs> so they're thinking Jesus would make me very unhappy right now I don't, I don't maybe later not right now but when we think about that just a little bit below the surface, we realize something's really messed up with that kind of thinking. There's an enormous disconnect. Does it really make any sense rationally to say, I believe everything the Bible says about him? Now think about what that means. It means I know he is full of love. He's a God of love. He loves me. He wants what's best for me. I know he's the one giving me life. I know he's the one giving me the breath I breathe. I know he gives meet people in my life who love me. I know he's given me all kinds of blessings in this life. I know he loved me enough to die on the cross for me. I know he loves me right now. I know he's God. God is love. And I believe he has the wisdom to know what's best for me. If he's God, he's got to have wisdom, right? He's the one who created me. I know he knows me through and through better than I know myself. He's God. He knows what's best for me. He knows what's going to bring me the most joy and happiness in this life. And I know he has the power to do it. He created the universe. He's God. He's omnipotent. There's nothing too hard for him. But <laughs> I'm not willing to submit to him because I think I know what's better for me than he knows what's best for me. <laughs> I think my life will go better if I do it my way instead of his way. Really? Is that really rational? <laughs> I don't think it is. To say, I know that what the Bible says about him is true. I know that he knows how to lead me through this life with the best possible outcome. But I'd rather stumble around in the darkness. I'd rather go down a bunch of blind alleys and dead end streets and just see how it turns out than turn my life over to him. You realize how silly that is? <laughs> it's a little bit like saying, look, I know I've got a horrible disease. I know it's going to kill me. And I know my doctor is really, really good. He's a specialist. He spent years of training. He studied this. He's treated others with this disease. But I'm not going to listen to my doctor. I'm going to treat myself with chocolate bars and cigarettes and whiskey. <laughs> You'd say, you're an idiot. <laughs> that kind of thinking is based on some kind of blind faith with no evidence at all that somehow our lives are going to turn out better if we do it our way 
instead of submitting to Jesus. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay. Let's consider another response. But you get people to say that. Now, I'm telling you guys, you'll hear people that. There are people living like that. Let's look at another possible response. Here's the question. Who is Jesus? And some people will say, well, I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. But I don't really believe he's God. I don't believe he's the creator God who's come in the flesh. They might say he's some kind of special creation of God, maybe a, a great angel of some kind. They might think he's a great man who lived so well for God that God raised him up, you know, or something like that. And, and let me tell you where you hear that kind of response. You'll hear that kind of response from people who call themselves Christians, but they're non-Christians. They're usually part of non-Christian cults. We call them cults sometimes. I'm talking about people like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. I think it's a very strange response. It's strange because they seem to accept the authority of the scriptures. They, they, many of them will say that the Bible is God's word. And the scripture tells us about Jesus' life, of course. They believe that and the miracles, the crucifixion, the resurrection. But they refuse to accept the authority of scriptures which tell us of his deity, that tell us he's God. So those scriptures that tell us he's God, believe, I'll show you some in just a minute, but they're very, very clear. But they think, i got to explain that away somehow. can't accept that. A few years ago, I went through several months of a very fascinating experience. I sat down every week with a group of very, very sweet Jehovah's Witnesses. And we had a long conversation once a week for several months. They were very nice. They were very sweet. They were very pleasant. And I'd love to share some more details about it, but I don't have time here. But, but I'll just say this. It was amazing to me how strongly they felt, how adamant they were, Jesus is not God. In spite of the clear evidence in the Bible, you see, they had been trained to have some kind of explanation for every scripture passage that teaches that Jesus is God. It's so sad to watch them explain away the scripture. When I would point out, for example, look, it's the same word in the Greek for God. It's used to refer to God the Father. It's used to refer to God the Son. They would say, well, it may be the same word, but it means something different when it's talking about Jesus. <laughs> just, a, just an ad hoc explanation to keep him from being God. When I pointed out, well, you know, Jesus received worship, just like God the Father receives worship. You know that no angel receives worship. No man receives worship. That's not okay. They would say, well, yeah, it's the same word, but, but when it's talking about Jesus, it means like greeting. It doesn't mean worship. It means some kind of greeting. This explain it away. It does mean worship, <laughs> but they have to explain it away because they've already made up their mind to refuse to believe that Jesus is the creator of God. They start out with that. The truth is, God's given us a lot of very clear biblical evidence that teaches Jesus really is fully God. And we don't need to take time today to do a thorough study. I mean, there are way more scriptures than I could possibly get in today, but I do want to take time just to show you a few of them. But I want to emphasize, this is definitely not an exhaustive list. Some of you may be thinking of other verses that you wish I had used, but you'll get the idea, that's for sure. I think probably the most famous one is in the very first few verses of the Gospel of John. I love it. You will too. You may have memorized it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, when you first read that, it seems a little puzzling. How could He both be with God and at the same time be God? Well, it's because God has revealed to us in his word that he is one God, but three persons. 
He's with God the Father. He is God the Son. And did you notice this? If he was created by God, then verse 3 can't be true because it says all things were created by him. Obviously, he cannot be a created being. If all things were created by him, he himself must be uncreated. Because if he was created, he'd be part of the things that were created, and he's not. He's all things, all things that were created were created by him. He is the creator of God. He exists co-eternally with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And somebody might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. He doesn't really say Jesus here. He says the word, so maybe he's not really talking about Jesus. But we know he is talking about Jesus. Because if we just read on a little further, we get into verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Jesus did. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God's being very clear here. Jesus is God. And then there's another wonderful verse over in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from a psalm, the 45th psalm. And when you first read the 45th psalm, it can sound a little confusing too. Listen to this. Look at this. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Wait a minute. Who does you refer to here? Well, verse 6 makes it clear. It refers to God. This is God the Father anointing God the Son with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the writer of Hebrews points that out. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, quoting the psalm. So clearly the Bible teaches Jesus is God. John chapter 10, we find Jesus in a conversation with a group of Jews. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? <laughs> What's he doing here? He's putting them on record for why they're planning to stone him to death. And here's what they said. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood exactly what Jesus meant. They understood him correctly. He claimed to be and is God. Listen to what Paul writes a little bit later in this book we're studying, the book of Romans. This is chapter 9. To them, he's talking about the Jews at this point, belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, listen to this, is Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. How clear can you get, right? Remember what he said to the Colossians? In him, speaking of Jesus, for in Jesus, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not just part of God the whole fullness of deity. He is fully God in the flesh. Paul wrote this to Titus, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our God and Savior. We could go on. There are many more scriptures that teach that Jesus is God, but you get the point. It's just irrational, isn't it? Isn't it irrational to say, I believe what the Bible says, but I've got, to, I've got to somehow explain away all these clear biblical verses that teach that he is God. People who do this are starting out. You see what they're doing? They're starting out with a theological presupposition. 
They got a presupposition. They got to explain away these clear biblical teachings in order to maintain this presupposition they have. Their presupposition is Jesus is not God. <laughs> so they start out with that and they try to explain it all the way. It's very irrational. Here's another possible response we get to that question, who is Jesus? You hear this one quite a bit. He was a great teacher. He was a good man. He was a wonderful and powerful world leader. He was a moral leader for the whole world. But even though he was an amazing teacher, he was, after all, only a man. And just like other men die, he died too. When he died, he stayed dead. There's no resurrection or anything like that. <laughs> so they're saying, you see, that Jesus is just a regular man, just maybe a little bit better, maybe a lot better than everybody else. When they say he was a great teacher, when they say he was a good man, when they say he was a spiritual leader, but not God, not risen from the dead, why do they say he's good? Why do they say he's great? Why do they say, think he's a wonderful leader? Well, usually they're thinking of things like this, where Jesus said, love one another. And they say, oh, that sounds good. Now, they redefine love, but we won't get into that right now. But, but they like that those words. It sounds like something a good man would say, doesn't it? Love one another. They usually like Jesus' statement of what we sometimes call the golden rule. That appeals to a lot of people. Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them. They kind of like that. That sounds like something in their mind a great teacher would say, so they like that statement. They may also be thinking about the enormous amount of good that Jesus did. He went about doing good, right? A lot of good things have been done by Jesus, and a lot of good things have been done throughout history in Jesus' name through the centuries. Very overwhelming, and it's very undeniable. There have been people who call themselves Christians who became doctors and nurses, and they've, and they've established hospitals all over the world. Some of the most poverty-stricken places of the world, they've, they've, they've established medical care. Christians. You remember the Ebola crisis happened a few years ago? Others were trying desperately to get out of that place, get away from the situation. There were Christians who were doctors and nurses running into the situation to try to help people. Christians have established orphanages all over the world because they cared about kids who didn't have any parents. Christians have established Christian schools all over the world because they wanted people to be able to read the Bible and understand what God's Word was telling them. I mean, Christians have done a lot of good throughout history. And you know what? When you look at pockets of history where Christian principles have been accepted by most people and followed, even if they weren't Christians themselves, it's been a great improvement to society. It's been enormous. And so a lot of people think, he must have been a pretty good guy. He must have been a pretty great religious leader to have done all these things and have all these things done in his name. I'll tell you something else. I think a lot of people who will give this kind of response it's, it sounds kind of intellectually satisfying to them. You know, it fits their basically secular worldview. They don't have a biblical worldview. They've got a secular worldview. So they've got to say, no, no, that's supernatural stuff. <laughs> but at the same time, it helps them sound like they're kind of being nice to the little Christians. You see what I mean? <laughs> it's like they're saying, hey, you dumb little Christian person. I think your leader was a good guy. He was a great guy. I like Jesus. Wrong Jesus. <laughs> Because the problem is this, the same Jesus who said love one another said other things that these people really don't like at all. It makes them very, very uncomfortable. For example, in Luke chapter 5, he said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I said, you rise, pick up your bed and go home. Whoa, did you hear what Jesus just said? He said, I've got the power to forgive sins. A good man can't do that, can he? I mean, a man that's just an ordinary man, he can't go around telling people, I'm forgiving your sins. Only God can do that. That wouldn't be a good man if he's not God to claim the ability to forgive sins. 
You can't do that if you're just a good man. Well, they don't like that. They're uncomfortable with that. Here's another one. I give them, Jesus said, eternal life. Did you hear that? I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That makes them very uncomfortable. <laughs> he said this, I and the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That sounds pretty supernatural. They don't like that. He said this, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They don't like that. <laughs> Jesus is claiming power to give people eternal life. He's claiming equality with God. Can just a plain, ordinary, mere man, even a great man, he couldn't be great, could he? I mean, if he's claiming to be good and, and he claims to give people eternal life and he claims to be able to give, forgive people's sins and claims equality with God, that would be a terrible deception, wouldn't it? He's a deceiver. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, to the Jews at the time, he seemed to be a man maybe 30 years old. And Jesus said, no, I was alive before Abraham lived. 1,800 years before now. <laughs> and when he uses the phrase, I am, they understood what that meant. He's identifying with God. I am. That's a God identified himself in the Old Testament. Mark 14. This is Jesus at his trial just before his crucifixion. He's before the Sanhedrin. Verse 61 says, he remained silent, made no answer. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, listen to this, I am. There it is again, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. <laughs> that's a pretty spectacular claim for somebody that's just a, an ordinary man, just a good teacher, no more than that. Seated at the right hand of power, that's God. Coming with the clouds of heaven, a mere man, really? They don't like that. So the same Jesus who said love one another also made some very spectacular claims that caused these same secularists to cringe. They may like the sound of claiming that Jesus was a great man, but no more than a man, but they got a problem. Because if he's no more than a man, he's saying some other things that make him look either crazy, he's either insane, or he's a very wicked deceiver. Now, what some of these people may do, if you kind of force them into thinking about this, they may say, well, I don't think those spectacular scriptures you've been reading, I don't think Jesus said that. That was added later on by early people that were followers of Jesus. They just made him into a greater man than he really was, and they tried to make him into a God that kind of evolved, his, his image did. The problem with that is they have to deal with the fact that we have thousands and thousands of early New Testament manuscripts that go right back almost to the first century. Far more manuscripts than any other ancient document. We don't have time to get into this right now, but I'm telling you, thousands of manuscripts confirm that the New Testament read, we're reading today, it's the same New Testament that was written in the first century. There's no doubt about that. Not really. It's not changed. It wasn't changed hundreds of years after the events. That's pretty easy to show historically. If you'd like to see some of that evidence, you can watch some of the videos in this Veritas Warriors of Christ series. 
They also have to deal with the powerful evidence that points to the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. God's given us lots of evidence that that resurrection really did happen. It's overwhelming. So this claim that Jesus was just a good man, but no more than a man, is based on an irrational, it's not rational, it's an irrational desire to hold on to a position that just kind of feels good to some of our secular friends. Sounds nice to them, they think. You ever heard of C.S. Lewis? You ever read any of his books? He's probably most famous for the Chronicles of Narnia. And I'm chasing a rabbit here, but I would encourage you, if you're interested, if you watch the movies in Chronicles of Narnia, if you've never read those books, even if you're an adult, read them. There's some real powerful biblical principles that he's written into these books that you miss in the movies. Movies miss a lot. Anyway, he wrote another book called Mere Christianity. Uh, there's a story behind that, too, that we don't go, go into. But I want us to look at one thing that he said in Mere Christianity. It's a wonderful quote that has to do with what we're talking about here. He said, yet, and he said, this is a strange, significant thing. Even his enemies, he's talking about the enemies of Jesus, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek. We believe him. Not noticing that if he were really merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we would attribute to some of his sayings. And of course, these sayings he's referring to here are some of the quotes I read earlier. (laughs) He goes on. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, C.S. Lewis says, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Isn't that a great quote? I love it. Here's another response to the question, who is Jesus? And you'll hear this pretty often today. I think it's totally silly because it's based on, I believe, totally inexcusable ignorance. But there are people who will say, well, you know what? There's really no way to know who Jesus was. He probably didn't even exist because our ideas about him are based on myths that were made up by the early church, maybe a few hundred years after he supposedly lived, and if he ever lived at all. You can't really know whether he even existed. Now, the problem with that foolish, irrational response is all the evidence God's left us. He's left us tons of manuscript evidence and historical evidence. He's left us evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He's left us evidence from fulfilled prophecy. He's left us evidence from archaeology. God's left us plenty of evidence. Not only that, for people who want to say he never even existed, we have even references to Jesus and to Christians from those early days from early non-Christian sources, non-biblical sources, that they're talking about Jesus and talking about the Christians. And that certainly confirms at least that he existed. These guys weren't even Christians. You understand what I'm saying? They're writing about Jesus. They're writing about Christians, but they weren't Christians themselves. One great example of that is a Jewish historian, Josephus. He was born in 37 AD, died in 100 AD, and he recorded a lot of Jewish history. 
He had a special emphasis on the first century A.D. and the first Jewish-Roman war, which was 66 to 70 A.D. That was a main emphasis of his, his writings. His most important works were the Jewish War, which he wrote around 75 A.D., and Antiquities of the Jews, which he wrote near the end of the first century, around 94 A.D. But the, the, the wars of the Jews, the Jewish war recounts the Jewish revolt against Roman occupation that led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Antiquities of the Jews, the second work, recounts the history of the world from a Jewish perspective, which he directed toward a Greek and Roman audience. And in his writings, Josephus happened to refer to Jesus, and he happened to also refer to the followers of Jesus. For one example, Josephus wrote this about James. Remember James, not, not the brother of John, but the half-brother of Jesus who became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Remember that, James? Josephus wrote this, Festus was now dead, and Albinus, Albinus became procurator of Judea from 62 to 64 A.D., Albinus was but upon the road, so he assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Josephus wrote this about John the Baptist. The context of this quote is that Herod had gotten himself into a war with the king of Petra, there was a man named Aretas who was the king of Petra, and Aretas had just finished crushing Herod's army. And Josephus wrote, Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, accordingly he was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. Those are the words of Josephus. One more thing I want to share with you from Josephus because it's so stunning. Listen to this. Josephus wrote this. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. <laughs> now, this quote is so specific about Jesus. I mean, it's kind of breathtaking, isn't it? But you know what the skeptics do. Of course, they, they read it. This, this, this can't be. <laughs> so they say that part of Josephus was added by a Christian historian later on. They usually say Eusebius. Eusebius was born in the third century. They say Eusebius added that. It wasn't part of the original writing. But the problem with that thought or that idea is there's no manuscript evidence for that claim. All the manuscripts we have have the same text I just read. It's just the skeptics don't like it. So they're like, couldn't have been Josephus. <laughs> they just don't like it. Here's another uh, Roman historian named Tacitus. Tacitus was definitely not a Christian. He lived a little bit later, 56 to 117 A.D., Here's a quote from Tacitus. Let me just give you the background. He's talking about the great fire that nearly destroyed Rome in 64 AD that Nero started. Some of the people had seen Nero's men starting the fires. 
So the Roman people were beginning to blame Nero for the fire. They were beginning to figure out Nero started this fire. So the report that it was Nero's doing was beginning to spread, and Nero needed to stop that because he knew that people would turn against him, so he needed to blame somebody else. And this is what Tacitus wrote. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, by that he means crucifixion, the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition. He's talking about Jesus claimed to be God, and after his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead, he doesn't want to believe it, so he calls it a superstition. The most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the, very, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, guilty of being a follower of Christ, not of starting the fires. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. That's what the Jews of Christians were. They were, they were hated men, mankind. We get accused of that today, by the way. And he went on to describe how the Christians were tortured under Nero. That, goes, that narrative goes on. One more Roman historian I'll mention, uh, Suetonius. Suetonius lived from 70 to 130 AD. Suetonius wrote this about the Emperor Claudius. He said, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, which is a misspelling of Christus, the Christ, he, he's talking about the Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Now, that parallels what Luke wrote for us in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. And he, talking about Paul now, when he came to Corinth, found a certain Jew named Aquila and a man of Pontus by race, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because why? Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. So Suetonius is writing about this same event. He also wrote this about Nero. He said, During his reign, many abuses were severely punished and put down, and no fewer new laws were made. A limit was set to expenditures. The public banquets were confined to a distribution of food. The sale of any kind of cooked viands in the taverns was forbidden, with the exception of pulse and vegetables, whereas before, every sort of dainty was exposed for sale. Listen, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. And again, by mischievous superstition, he's referring to the deity of Christ and his resurrection. I said one more. I've got one more. Plenty the Younger. Uh, he's a Roman judge. He was a lawyer. He was a politician. Plenty the Younger. He had several different positions in the Roman government. He lived from 61 AD to 112. And we have an exchange of letters between Pliny the Younger and the emperor who was Trajan at that time. And in that exchange, Pliny, who was the governor of Bithynia, that's a part of what we call Turkey today, Asia Minor, he asked Trajan for direction in how to handle the Christians. His letter is way too long for us to look at it, but, but he basically was asking three questions. He was asking, number one, should Christians be treated differently depending on their ages? In other words, should I treat Christian kids different from Christian adults? Number two, he wanted to know if they deny that they're Christians, should I pardon them or should I still punish them? And the third question he had was, should they be executed just because they're Christians, or do I need to find some other crime to associate with them that they're, they're guilty of without necessarily being a Christian just because they're a Christian? 
And Pliny went on to explain that he was in the habit of giving Christians three chances to renounce their Christianity. And if they would renounce it, he would make them prove it by cursing Jesus, and he would make them offer incense as an act of worship to Trajan. And if they refused to do that, he just had them executed. Well, Trajan did answer his letter, and we have a copy of Trajan's letter, too. And basically what he did was say, Pliny, I think you're doing a good job. <laughs> uh, he said, you're doing the right thing. If, if they're Christians who won't recant, they should be punished or executed. But Trajan said, I don't want to just put down a general rule or strict standards about this age question. You just make the decision yourself, whatever you think's best. Now, why am I sharing all these quotes with you? Because these people were not Christians. They were Roman and Jewish historians. And yet they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about Christians during the first century of the church and the second century and later. You see what I'm saying? It's irrational to say Jesus probably didn't even exist. I mean, they're just showing their ignorance of history. And don't forget, there's more. <laughs> Again, we don't have time to go into all this. But in addition to these writings, we have writings from early Christian leaders. Men who wrote letters and, and treatises for the churches to read. They were based on the New Testament. There's a New Testament scholar who said that you could virtually recreate the entire New Testament just from quotes of it included in these writings of the early Christian leaders in the late first century and on into the second century of Christian history. So anybody who says he didn't exist, they've got a serious problem with historical facts. They're just ignoring them. They just want to believe something that to them makes a little bit of sense. They're trying to soothe their beliefs. <laughs> Just remember, the evidence for the historical reliability of the events recorded in the New Testament is overwhelmingly stronger than evidence for other historical events that most people will accept without batting an eye. You talk about ancient history. Like, yeah, 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 I know about that. They've studied it in history books. But the evidence is far greater for the New Testament. So the skeptic who tries to argue that the New Testament can't be trusted, if he's going to be consistent, he's going to have to say, I don't believe any history. <laughs> it's all inconsistent. There's no, we don't know what happened in the past. They've just got to throw all history out. Because if they're, not going to, if they're going to reject the historical evidence for the New Testament, they've got to reject the historical evidence for everything else if they're going to be consistent. They're being arbitrary. They're rejecting the evidence, not because it's not there. It's clearly there. They just don't want it. They don't want to believe in the supernatural. They don't want to believe in the miraculous. They don't want to accept it. So they just throw it out. They're choosing their position not because of the evidence. They're choosing it in spite of the evidence. So here's the bottom line to all this. There's really only one rational answer to that question, who is Jesus? And that's essentially the same answer Peter gave when Jesus first asked that question. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. It's essentially what Paul says here in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He is God's Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the only rational response for us is to believe Him, to love Him, to trust Him, to give Him my life, to follow Him, to worship Him, to make my life all about Him for His glory. He's God. Father, thank You so much for revealing the truth to us if we'll just look at it the truth about Jesus, the truth about yourself. Thank you for giving us your word. Lord, you know that some of us have lived with your word so long that it's easy for us to take you for granted. It's easy for us to take your word for granted. It's easy for us to not realize the incredible thing you've done, the incredible treasure you've given us in the truth in your word. 
Lord, our heart goes out to people who fall into these categories we've been talking about, who reject you, who reject the truth, who reject Jesus because they don't think they want Jesus in their lives. They think he's going to mess up their lives or they think they're going to be uh, irrational when really they're being irrational already. Lord, would you please help us to know how to communicate your truth to them? Would you please use us to help them see who you are? to see Jesus more clearly than they have ever seen before. We know, Lord, that'll take a supernatural work, you working in their hearts. But we also know you choose to use us to carry that message. So help us to do that well. Help us to communicate your truth well. And help us when Satan begins to put doubts in our own hearts and minds to remember some of these things and just drive him off in the power of your word, and the power of your truth, and your spirit, the power of our Lord Jesus. So thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for this time we've had with you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.